probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome to The Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me again this week is... Zachary T. Owen, all-around super horror fan and also horror writer. Right on. So, uh, we're finally getting into some uh, some movie stuff here. We're out of the credits for uh, for minute number three of The Thing, uh, which begins with the very end of the title, uh, as it burns out and, and disappears and then uh ends a minute later a man leaning out of a helicopter out in the snowy vista so this is where we obviously kind of dig into the actual story and we get our uh, our kind of uh, title card of antarctica 1982 so one, one of the things i just never even occurred to me is i'm wondering why if it was just by default that they chose to have it take place in 1982 or if there's like a specific reason they wanted to uh, have it take place the same year as the movie i mean my guess would just be with horror films especially at the time a sense of immediacy makes it almost kind of scarier like if it took place uh the year that who goes there came out 1938 or even you know like in the 50s or whatever it could still be scary, but for the audience, it's just like the concept of uh, – e- even though it's fiction, like this is a thing happening now in our time. kind of lends some uh, scariness to the idea that wouldn't be there necessarily before. And also that's another way to relate it to the audience. I mean this location is not something that most people can relate to, and you know, most people don't know what it's like to be a scientist – on an isolated base, but the fact that it takes place in 1982 and people were seeing it in 1982, uh, does land it a little bit of relatability. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, obviously there's some, maybe some practical reasons to not have to do like, you know, period costumes or, or anything like that. They would save money by not doing that, especially. Yeah, for sure. Even though I think actually this movie feels very kind of the look of it feels very timeless to me. I don't, you know, it's not like anybody's wearing like shoulder pads or anything. Like, right. You know, I guess it's almost I, it's like a, it's like, it's a void that they're in. <laughs> yeah. It's, I guess winter, winter outerwear has not changed all that much in, uh, in the last 30 years, I guess. But yeah, I, I definitely think, I think you're probably right about that, about the kind of immediacy. I think it's maybe one step removed from like, you know, in, in old pulp horror movies where, you know, the actual movie theater gets attacked by whatever monsters in the movie. It's just one of those things where like, you know, I guess something else I wish they'd bring back. (laughs) Yeah, no, I kind of love those classic scenes or, you know, the zombies walk through the, uh, the screen or the blob goes over the, uh, the projector and invades the movie theater. It's kind of awesome. Yeah. It's definitely one of those things. I I remember, uh, there's only been a handful of movies that I kind of walked out of the theater and being kind of nervous in the theater. I'm just a couple of years ago. Uh, it follows, I remember walking out and being like and seeing somebody walking down the hallway of the movie theater and kind of freaking out a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, you know, a lot of movies, they definitely don't do that, uh, that kind of effect anymore. And, and I guess the idea here is that, you know, you could walk out of the theater and, and maybe wonder, 
if anybody around you is, has been taken over by the thing, if it made it to the mainland. So I guess there's, there's that reason to do it as well. But obviously it takes place in Antarctica, which is the same place it takes place in, in the original novella. Although interestingly, in the thing from another world in the original movie, it's not Antarctica. It's the opposite end. It's the North Pole for whatever reason. Yeah, another decision I'm not entirely sure uh, why they went with. But yeah, it seems like just kind of a pointless change. Like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but this part was shot. Um, the movie was shot in three, I guess, three primary locations. There's, there's obviously they shot a lot of it on on set in L.A., but they did, uh, they shot all these vistas, just kind of the open, you know, snowy locales are all um, just outside of Juneau, Alaska. And then the actual base that they built is in uh, British Columbia near Stewart. So um, obviously we'll get to that later. But yeah, this this part here is shot um, just outside of Juneau, Alaska with a, a second unit crew before they had hired on a lot of the crew. So they started filming this stuff bef- like well before they had um, they had started with any of the primary footage or in some cases before they'd even hired some people. So specifically, I guess they had not hired the the actor that was going to play the the Norwegians at this point. So that guy leaning out of the helicopter is Larry Franco, the um the, one of the producers on the movie. He shows up a lot in this um like as other people, which is kind of funny. So yeah, he's the first person you actually see is, is in the movie is Larry Franco. This minute is basically just a helicopter kind of flying around. At least visually, that's that's the first thing you see. The, this means nothing to me, but maybe it does to somebody. The helicopter is a Bell 206. Uh, I don't know. But um, it is interesting to note that doing this movie and doing like these shots in particular uh, are what got John Carpenter into helicopters. And apparently, I didn't realize this, but he's uh, he got his pilot's license um, just a couple of years after this, I think, and has been like an avid helicopter pilot ever since, which is just one of those weird little bits of trivia. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Yeah, I, I don't know a lot about uh, Carpenter's personal habits, but I, I did meet a director at one point that was supposed to work with him on a project. It never came to fruition, but I remember asking him, what's Carpenter like Like when you're around him, like in his daily life, what's he like? And, and the guy just said, well, he smokes a lot of cigarettes and he <laughs> likes to play video games in his basement. <laughs> and I thought that was probably the funniest answer I, I could have gotten. That's pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, he definitely in interviews and stuff, he hardly ever talks about anything kind of personal. Uh, but you're right. He is always he's constantly smoking in every interview I've ever seen him in. But I do like the idea of John Carpenter playing video games in his basement. And then yeah, I guess he's really into video games. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I, w- I would not have guessed that. Um, but I don't know. I guess, you know, he's a guy who's who does not act his age. So that that shouldn't surprise me, I guess. But yeah, maybe he, he plays some video games and then he takes a break and goes and flies around in his helicopter. I don't know. <laughs> Speaking of, there was uh, the thing video game, which allegedly is what drummed up the interest for a new thing movie and eventually kind of led to the prequel that we got. But it was a PlayStation 2, PC and Xbox title. And John Carpenter is in the game uh, as a character who looks exactly like him. <laughs> uh, and his quote, like his little blurb supporting the game. He literally name drops that character saying that it's like a great character. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, I, you know, I looked into the game. I've never actually played it. Have you? I have it. It's really good. Um, I think tonally, like it, it does capture the movie pretty well. I mean, obviously there's a lot more limitations, you know, it, the story isn't as rich. It's not, you know, it's not written 
to my knowledge by anybody involved with the film mm-hmm. but uh I mean I'm a casual video game fan and it was a lot of fun and it it got me kind of interested when I first played it and watching the thing again and may have kind of uh, reignited my passion for the movie so yeah see I've I'd never even known it existed until very recently I definitely want to go and check it out I liked it's uh, the idea of your um the people that are with you, you having to worry about their fear level and their trust level is really, really interesting. I, I was shocked at how like accurately it sounds like the game at least attempts yeah. to capture the the movie, you know? And that doesn't always uh, carry through successfully, I think, because the technology wasn't quite where sure. it needed to be. I think if the game came out now, that would be a lot, a lot more prevalent. But it's still an interesting concept. And uh, when you play the game and somebody on, you know, your team morphs into the thing, it's always really disheartening. Uh, <laughs> and it makes me feel kind of like I'm in the movie a little bit like, oh, no, not that guy. I like that guy. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, well, I have to ask, does, does John Carpenter get become the thing in, in the game? Uh, no, I don't remember his fate exactly. Uh, he's not in the whole game. He's in like a mid-period of it. Uh, but I, I believe he just is kind of a side character who – I don't think anything particularly exciting happens to him. He just kind of – you know, he serves a purpose and then you don't see him anymore. But uh, there there are like scripted transformations throughout the game where people on your team uh, will turn into the thing. And sometimes they can turn into the thing before that, but there's always a certain like cutoff point. Yeah. Uh, and it would have been interesting, I think, to see uh, Carpenter transform into the thing. <laughs> but another interesting thing, uh, well, it's funny how much we have to say the word thing when talking about <laughs> There also is some stuff directly related to the film. Like it, it is a sequel and you uh, – you do, you do see uh, some stuff that kind of indicates what might have happened at the end of the film. So if nothing else, it's worth playing for that. Yeah, I did read about that. I've got a long way to go before I get to the minutes where I can talk about that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's definitely that's definitely interesting. And I, I'm curious too, you, so if the guy looks like just like John Carpenter, does it look like him like in 82 or does it look like him now? Like, it, it's, it was closer to now because his hair was all white uh, and everything. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and he um, – you know, he voices the character. <laughs> and he does a decent job. I mean, he's done a little bit of acting. He was in uh, Body Bags, his anthology movie. He kind of played a Crypt Keeper type character. Oh, I haven't seen that. That sounds that sounds. It's pretty cool. solid. I mean, it's hardly a major film in his filmography, but it's a lot of fun. And I think a little bit overlooked. One of his better 90s period movies. Yeah, I have, that's one I have not seen. I'll have to check that out. I, um, the only kind of, I guess this isn't really acting necessarily, but thing like that, that I know, know about Carpenter is, I think it's the band Gunship. I can't, I think that's them. Yes. yes. Yeah. That they got him to do like this opening, this epic opening narration for their album video. Yeah. Yeah, It's great. I I love that. It's great. Um, and you know, speaking of that, he does have his, uh, music now that he's kind of gone away from, uh, filmmaking, and I, I hope he co- keeps coming out with more albums because I really enjoy them. Yeah, so that's that's a perfect transition. So th- this minute is actually the the first minute with the the main theme, the the desolation theme. That's um, yes. that's one of the things this movie is most famous for, for sure. So uh, you know the the score is one of the kind of more interesting things to to talk about with this movie because it's such a strange kind of occurrence that. Um, you know, John Carpenter scores almost all of his own movies. Um, up to this point, I think he had scored all of them. And 
so for whatever reason for this movie, I, I guess just because he had the budget to, and maybe Universal asked who who he wanted to compose it. Maybe they didn't realize that he had kind of planned on doing it himself. He wanted to get uh, Ennio Morricone, who was pretty famous already at the time for having done uh, lots of spaghetti westerns and stuff. I right, mean, uh, which Carpenter know. is hugely influenced by. I mean, uh, a lot of his films are are kind of in a, in a way westerns, like Big Trouble in Little China, Escape from New York. Uh, and he had said before that he he wanted to make westerns, but they were kind of dead. So he he would put those elements in his movies in other ways. Yeah, and I I think even um, I can't remember what it's called, but I think even like one of his first short films that he did in school was uh, was a western. It was it was like the one that kind of got him noticed. Right. Yeah, he won an award for that. Yeah, that was I think that even won an it won an Academy Award, right, for short film or something. Yeah, I believe so. Which at the time was. Uh, kind of a big deal because you know he was he was really young and he was in film school and that's that's when uh i guess that's was a time when a lot of like indie filmmaking and like young filmmakers were really starting to become a thing like he he was right on the uh the beginning of all that and you know he he won that award and i think that was his first real taste of success and probably made him feel a bit validated, you know, and maybe, maybe things would have been different if he, if he hadn't uh, made that film. I don't know, but yeah, I, I can't remember if we've, we've talked about this before, but if anybody's interested in kind of the, that kind of prehistory of, of John Carpenter stuff, shock value is a really fantastic book that dives into a lot of the kind of horror filmmakers, um, mostly from around that time, but it kind of goes through the history of kind of the the rebirth of genre filmmaking in America. But yeah, there's, there's a lot in that book about kind of um, how he got his start and how he was kind of the big shot on campus at the time, which is kind of funny to think about, but, and how, how his kind of relationship with Dan O'Bannon started and then kind of went sour and all that. It's uh, the, the two of them definitely have, have a huge impact on cinema history. So it's, it's very interesting to kind of read about their relationship, but we were talking about the, uh, the score. So he brought on uh, Morricone, who you know had done lots of stuff at that point, and obviously is a landmark composer at this stage. But uh, Morricone, uh, kind of, I, from what I understand, he wrote a score for the movie that was more kind of in his kind of traditional vein, right? And then Carpenter was, you know, it was kind. Of, I guess I, I can imagine how awkward this must have been because he he was like a Carpenter was a huge fan, and there was yeah. maybe a little bit of a language barrier too. It sounds like, but he had to tell him like, um, "This is not quite what I was looking for." And um, so Carpenter showed him the score to Escape from New York, and um, and Morricone put together. Sounds like he put together um, this main theme based on that kind of, um, you know, a combination of his own style and Carpenter's style. So it's kind of a, a unique melding of two, you yeah, know, two great composers. It doesn't sound like anything Morricone had done before, uh, no. but it does sound like something Carpenter could have performed, and uh, you know it has his stamp of influence. And the interesting thing too, uh, I guess, I, you know, I'd read that actually. We talked a little bit how this movie wasn't super successful when it came out, but the uh, Razzies nominated mm-hmm. the score for like worst music, which is surprising to me because. I would have thought that even when the movie wasn't very successful, people would recognize, you know, how good the music is. But I guess not. Certainly they do now. And the other thing, too, is that a lot of the score wasn't actually used for the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you listen to the whole soundtrack, you know, there are the Desolation theme is used a lot and a couple other pieces. But a, a lot of the tracks kind of just uh, 
aren't anywhere to be found in the movie. And I guess were uh, used later in, um, I think it was Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. Yeah. Yeah, which is a very Carpenter-esque movie. So I, I remember thinking that watching the movie that it had definitely had that vibe. And that was that was scored by Morricone. And then obviously they used some of the bits from from the thing that were not used in the original movie. So, yeah, it's kind of, I definitely want to go back and watch that now, knowing that and kind of see if I can pick out which of those pieces come from this. It's funny that you mentioned the Razzies thing. Get get this. It wasn't just the one. He was nominated for two Razzies that year, which is like wow. shocking. Like this guy is like one of the most legendary. He's composers. like a legendary, you know, film scorer. Yeah. And he um, it was that and some other movie called Butterfly. He was nominated for two. He didn't he didn't win either of them. Um, but uh, yeah, it's kind of kind of incredible to see that. Yeah, so um, we, we've talked about this lots before, but this seems like the obvious place to bring up, like you mentioned, John Carpenter's music from his you know solo musician career that he's kind of started in the last couple of years. So both of us, um, only separated by, I think, like a day or two days maybe, yeah. uh, got, to, got to see him live. Um, I saw him in New York, and you saw him in Pennsylvania. Yeah, uh, Pittsburgh, the Carnegie Library Music Hall. Yeah. So, um, what, what do you remember about the show? Was it, was it a good concert? It was really good and it was really kind of unusually funny to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. because Carpenter, I mean, he writes almost all of his own music and, you know, he plays the keyboard, but it, in typical Carpenter fashion, um, it seemed like he wanted to f- find a way to do things, th- you know, in the most pragmatic way that he could. So he played a lot of the, uh, simpler parts of the tracks i think and the backing band did the heavy lifting but i mean i can't really knock him for that he wrote the music uh and it's really good but it was kind of funny because it gave him a lot of freedom (laughs) to just kind of goof around uh (laughs) and interact with the audience and he would like point at them and shake his finger and (laughs) just he did this weird little dance that just seeing John Carpenter do a, a funny dance in front of a crowd <laughs> is is so surreal. Like that's one of the things that I won't forget about the show. And the track list was great. I mean, I think he played pretty much almost every major piece of music from his movies. Um, and I th- I think we already mentioned he did play the Morricone uh, thing theme, and that was a really cool moment too. And I enjoyed the uh, the backing footage from all of his movies. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely it was a that was a really fun show. Um, it was it was yeah the the backing footage was made it really interesting. It was kind of a you know a, a whole experience. But I'm so glad that you brought up how how kind of goofy he was because that was that's like the main thing I remember was just how kind of strange not in a bad way but it was just so strange so not what I was expecting, you know, um, you know from this filmmaker who turns composer and. You know, the album covers is his like creepy, very serious face, like looking at the camera. And then at the show is like I was I was trying to describe it to a, a buddy of mine. And I was like, I was like, I know this is going to sound terrible, but like the show was mostly it was great music. And then it was like this old guy like dancing up on stage. Like It was like <laughs> the strangest thing I've ever seen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed. He also has taken on that habit that uh, many older and elderly people seem to like uh it looks like they're chewing on something, <laughs> like they're adjusting their lips. I don't know <laughs> if it has to do with moisture <laughs> or dryness. So it would just look like he was just chewing on gum all the time. <laughs> I mean, maybe he was. I don't know. But I didn't get that impression. It just was a funny little mannerism. That's very uh, strange. I, I was not close enough to, to witness that. <laughs> and the other thing, too, that I that's really interesting is that uh, I guess Tom Atkins was just at the show. Like he just came out. Oh, really? Uh, 
was just sitting in the audience and like, you know, there was no announcement about this. And that guy's getting really old and he just he took some pictures with fans and stuff. I mean, he was in uh, what the fog mm-hmm. and Halloween uh 3 um and you know, some other notable genre films from the 80s. Yeah, that's weird. It was definitely interesting. The show was full of um I, the only time, other time I can think of being in a crowd that was similar to this is um, I got to see uh, Goblin a couple of years ago. Oh, I killed to see them. It That'd was be- it was pretty sweet. But uh, yeah, just a bunch of horror nerds all in crammed in one place. It was kind of <laughs> awesome. But the the other thing I'll never forget about the show that I, I now uh, my wife and I quote all the time was I, I wish I remember what song he was talking about. Like it was in the intro to one of the uh, one of the songs that he was playing where he did this thing. And I'm wondering if he did this a year or two where he was like, uh, he was talking about the legacy of kind of horror movies and, you know, how important they are to him. And then he was like, and then horror movies can last forever, ever, ever. <laughs> he did this like ridiculous delay thing that was like so corny, but so awesome. <laughs> yeah. He, he's like almost like a cool grandpa now. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I I often tell people now that I want to be uh, I want to be as weird and crazy looking as John Carpenter when I when I get to <laughs> yeah, be and he's age. looked really old for like the last thirty years. Yeah, he hasn't changed. His look has not changed very much for the last like thirty oh. years. It's but it's just been consistently like like skeleton man with like wispy white hair. <laughs> he got very young and then just remained at the same age forever. Yeah. <laughs> Which, speaking of that, I actually saw uh, one time in. An, a documentary um someone had asked him like you know if you could live forever would you and a lot of other people's responses were like no like everyone i know would die and it would get boring and like depressing and john carpenter was just like yeah i think it'd be interesting I told <laughs> him, like maybe it, you know it would be hard to lose people but eventually i would just be like well where's this going next <laughs> for some reason that does not surprise me <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's, he's definitely a fascinating guy. You know, even, you know, I think I mentioned yesterday, the, um, interview that he did with, um, John Landis and, uh, David Cronenberg. And even just among those guys, you know, back in their heydays, he's so different from them too. He's so much more serious. And like, I I feel like he was probably wearing like a sweater or something. Oh, totally. And everyone else is dressed up. And they're all, and, um, Landis and, and Cronenberg are both like, they're they're both kind of a little jokey, but they're also both like very serious about their craft. And they're like, um, I'm trying to remember what they were talking about, but there's one point when they're like, um, oh, I w- they're like, I would never reshoot something just because like because of a test audience. And so they're like, uh, they're like, have you ever done that? And John Carpenter's like, oh yeah, like we do that all the time. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, a lot of his key films were majorly reshot, like The Fog. Yep. And I, I remember reading the thing like at one point had some slasher elements in it where, you know, someone was being chased by the thing uh, kind of shrouded in darkness and it had an axe or something. And they actually shot a lot of that footage and then, you know, cut it out of the movie and kind of reshaped it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it was just it, was, it just kind of struck me that he was he seemed much more practical and kind of uh, mature than his, his counterparts, which was he I think he's always kind of stood apart in that way, even though he's obviously a, a big part of that kind of Masters of Horror pack. So yeah, he's definitely definitely an interesting guy. So I think uh, that that kind of wraps up um, what I had for this minute. I, we can uh, you know dive into some more um, more Carpenter uh, history and, and stuff uh, tomorrow because we've got a lot a lot of the same tomorrow. Uh, more more helicopter stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so um, any, anything else you wanted to mention for this one? Uh, no, I don't think so. I I think uh, that about covers it for me. So cool. And uh, anything uh, I'm. I'm 
challenging you to come up with a third thing to uh, to to plug or, or mention oh, today. Boy. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm running out of stuff now. I mean, I do. If I'm mentioning all my books, The October King is also on Amazon, and that was one of my few uh, experiments in self-publishing, and it's basically a free sampler of my work. And you know, it's a Kindle exclusive, and people can just download that, you know, at their whim. It doesn't cost anything. So. Cool. Yeah, and that's a good one too. I've I've read that as well. So we'll definitely put the link up for that and and for all of Zach's other stuff uh, on today's show notes. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back tomorrow with another episode of The Thing Minute. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper signing out. Harper signing out.